So last week we began a journey into maybe a different uh, sort of Advent, maybe one that looks a little bit different uh, than, than some of you are used to. And what I want to do today is start off by just very briefly uh, recapping or reminding you what we processed uh, then, what we processed that Sunday. We looked at Matthew 25 uh, and the parable of the ten bridesmaids or the ten virgins, which is not necessarily a standard Christmas story. It's not the first piece of scripture that probably jumps to mind. But for the theme that we're working with this year, uh, it really, really struck right at the heart of what we are processing together. So this parable, Jesus is talking about uh, the kingdom here, and this is shortly before his death, and so he's trying to prepare his disciples. He's looking past his death and resurrection path, uh, past his victory on the cross, to this in-between time that the disciples would be living in, that we live in, where the kingdom of God has arrived and is here and the victory has been won and yet that victory hasn't been fully realized in some ways. The world has evil and brokenness and pain in it still and so Jesus looks ahead to these things and he paints a word picture that says this is what the kingdom of God is like in those times. The wedding is on and it's happening, but you're waiting for the bridegroom to show up. You know that it's coming, but you stand in the dark, and it's late, and you're tired, and you don't know when he's going to come. And in that place, what you need to do, Jesus tells his disciples, he tells us, is to keep your lamps ready, is to bring oil, is to maintain them. You don't know when the bridegroom is coming, but make sure that you're ready when he does. And so this Advent, what we're looking at is what it means to wait well, what it means to be ready, what it looks like to keep ourselves prepared in the midst of night. And we as a society, and I am absolutely very guilty of this, we're losing in some ways what it means to wait, what it means to just exist in the moment. We're losing patience. And we see this in all sorts of things. I mean, the smartphone has been around for a little over 10 years. I've owned a smartphone for maybe, I was trying to do the math with Aaron, maybe seven or eight years. But, but in that short time in my life, it has already completely rewired me in some ways. It's amazing how much my brain or my outlook has changed in some ways because of this thing. I remember going to a walk-in clinic a while back, and I sat down for the wait, which can be a long And unpredictable waits, you know that. It can be an hour or two or three or four. And I sat down and I realized my phone was at 2% battery. And I didn't have a charger. And I'm not a guy who gets my feathers easily easily ruffled. um, But I had a bit of a kind of a wave of anxiety come over me. What am I going to do with myself for the next one or two or three or four hours? How was I going to know what was going on in the outside world? There are only so many 10-year-old reader's digests you can read before you start to go a little crazy. How was I going to survive? Maybe I didn't need the treatment or the diagnosis after all. And this phone has only been around for a few years. For thousands of years, we've had to sit in waiting rooms reading Maclean's and Reader's Digests. And yet here I am not knowing what to do with myself, feeling like I need to keep myself entertained and occupied, not really knowing how to twiddle my thumbs anymore. The point is, Waiting is tough. And as time goes on, I don't think we as a culture are getting better at it. Uh, 
It's only getting tougher. And so it felt important for myself, and I think for many of us to remind ourselves what it means, what it looks like to wait, to slow down. And this Advent we are looking forward as much as we're looking back. We're looking towards Jesus' return. And the scripture that we're going to be focusing on over the next few weeks, what we're intentionally doing is walking alongside those who are waiting for Jesus the first time around. And we're learning from their waiting and from their journeys, from their stories, as we wait along with them in this middle time, as we wait for his triumphant return. So, today, as we explore what it means to be good lamp holders, to wait well, we are going to take a look at this piece of scripture from Isaiah that Stacy read for us. Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. And this is a more traditional scripture passage for this time of year. It's made famous at least partially from its inclusion in Handel's Messiah. It's one of those pieces of scripture that feels better in some ways than the King James because you're used to that sort of language because it's been used uh, in so many different things. But I'm going to read it from the NIV. And the chapter starts out, this piece of scripture starts out with a very important word. And the word is Nevertheless. And that's the sort of word that makes it pretty clear that in order to understand whatever it is that's coming next, we really need to turn back a page. We need to understand what's about to be said in the context of whatever came before because he's making a point, Isaiah is, based on what happened just before this. And so what I want to do is start in chapter 8, verse 19, and it reads like this. When someone tells you to consult mediums, And spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land where they are famished. They will become enraged. Looking upward will curse their king and God. Then they will look down toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Isaiah is calling out the people of Israel for looking away from God, for trying to solve problems on their own, trying to take matters into their own hands, for trying to skip the weight for trying to consult other spirits than God for information. And God says, people like this, not only will they be distressed and hungry, because clearly the info they're getting is not what God is calling them to. It's leading them down a dark path. But when they turn their eyes away from God, it's going to bring calamity on them. And in that place, they're going to become angry at God himself. They're going to blame God for what's happening to them. They're going to look around and be faced with utter darkness, Israel, Isaiah says, is going to get themselves into this mess, and then they're going to find a way to blame God for it, and then this cycle of blame and betrayal is going to mean there is no light of dawn, they're in utter darkness, they're totally confused and lost. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. 
And then he flips into a familiar prophecy. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So in spite of what the people are doing to themselves, in spite of the dark roads that they have chosen to walk down, in spite of their twisted hearts, in spite of their misplaced blame, their anger towards God, God is going to step in and provide a great light. And in verse 6 and beyond, in the most well-known part of this passage, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, makes it clear how this is going to happen. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. His reign, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then after this prophecy, Isaiah immediately plunges back into a horrific warning of anger and wrath from God against the people of Israel, of their wickedness, which burns like a fire, and of the wrath of the Almighty. The land will be scorched, and people will be fuel for the fire, and they will, spare, they will not spare one another, and each will feed on the flesh of their offspring. It's this horrific image of what it looks like to live without God. When people try to live without God, it brings total devastation. And in some ways, this mirrors the warnings of Jesus that we looked at last week, the warnings that he gave leading up to his parables, calamity and destruction and death and wickedness and evil through this whole chapter. But sitting in the middle, a bright ray of hope. In Matthew 24, instead of nevertheless, it was but... But it's the same idea. It changes everything that came before it. It shines a light into the darkness. But the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. So here, generations and generations and generations ahead of time, Isaiah makes a birth announcement. He announces the birth of the man who would say those words. And more than just make the announcement, he actually names the child with four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And each of these names, I think, gives us a clue or an additional insight as to what this light means to us who walk in the darkness. What light means to those who are standing firm, to those who are waiting for the dawn. So first, Wonderful Counselor, God is our wise comforter. He who is there at the dawn of creation. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. He who numbers the hairs on our heads, who so loved the world that he made himself human, that he lived with us, that he served us, that he died for us, and that he rose again through his Holy Spirit. He is our comforter, our counselor, and our refuge. Isaiah expands on this idea later in chapter 11 saying, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears 
or, or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Isaiah saw that God, that this child would be born and would be the ultimate and perfect answer to our questions and confusion, would make things right, would be a wonderful counselor. Second, Isaiah calls this child to be born a mighty God. First Corinthians says that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, a God of order. The word God here that Isaiah uses is El. It's one of the highest names for God. It's reserved for thinking about God as an absolute, perfect, separate, holy deity. A God who is in complete control, who isn't out of breath or frazzled by the situation. He's not overwhelmed. He's not unsure. He's got this. And he's got us. In the midst of darkness, Isaiah looks forward to the man that John calls the light of the world, who will restore order and justice. The person of Christ forgives our sin. He defeats Satan. He liberates us from evil. He redeems us. He answers our prayers. He restores our souls, and he reigns forever over perfect order, over everything as it should be. Third, God is our everlasting Father. He is the eternal Father, or Father of eternity. He was Father yesterday, today, and tomorrow. As Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, all ages meet in him, come together in him. He is Lord of all. We are called God's children. And he loves us as father. And as his children, we have value that cannot be taken away. We have an inheritance that is ours for eternity. We're co-heirs with Christ, invited to the table, treated as family. What an incredible promise to grab onto in the midst of pain or chaos or uncertainty. We have a father in heaven who does not forget, who keeps his promises, who loves us and knows us intimately, who has a personal relationship with us and who is in control of eternity. And the fourth name is this, Prince of Peace. Jesus' reign, Isaiah says, is going to be characterized by peace. His coming will bring with it peace. The kingdom of God will be known by and built on Peace. This child is going to bring about restoration and reconciliation, not only between us as people, not only between each other, but also as the bringer of ultimate peace, the restorer of relationship between us and God. In Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 18, we see this realized in Jesus. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we're introduced to this child who is given the names 
of God, names that specifically and directly relate to God himself. This child will be our counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, and our prince of peace. Isaiah ends the prophecy with a small but incredibly important statement. He says simply, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a common theme throughout Isaiah. He's used some vivid, some stomach-turning word pictures to describe what the zeal of people accomplishes. And over and over again through his letter, he contrasts the failing efforts of people with the powerful and purposeful actions of a God who is on the move, who has a plan. Some of you, when you sent in your verses of God's faithfulness, sent in verses from later on in Isaiah, and we see in those verses a God who is taking action, who holds us, who guides us, who gathers us, who calls us his own, and who is the one getting the job done. We are held by him. And maybe a good way to drive this point home is to propose a bit of an update or a bit of a change or a bit of a new look at a very common uh, evangelism tool, a very common illustration that we have of salvation. This isn't uh, my own idea that I came up with, it's something I come across, but I think it's a really good illustration uh, of what this can mean. And the, and the beautiful drawings that you're about to see, that's all me, so be ready to be impressed here. Thank you, Darren, for the laugh. Um, for many of you, this is going to be a familiar image. Uh, you already kind of know what's going on here. I think many of you, when you look at this, you probably know what the next step is going to be. Uh, and let me be clear, this is an amazing, it's a powerful tool. I've used it often over the years, and I'm going to continue to use it. It's a powerful image of the human condition and of our relationship to God. But this is how it goes. I'll just go over it very quickly. On one side... We have humanity, we have you and me, and we're, we're in a kingdom of death, we're slaves to sin, we're captives to the kingdom of the flesh, to Satan, to fallenness. And then across this impossibly wide chasm is the kingdom of life, it's God, and it's rescue, and it's freedom, but God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus. And Jesus, who is God himself, died on the cross... And through his death, he made a way for us to cross that chasm and be together with God in the kingdom of life. So this, I think, to many of you, this is a familiar illustration. This is something that I certainly saw growing up at Bible camps and, and got taught in Sunday school. It's something I saw often as a child. And it's good, but when I think about the Christmas story, when I think about the hope that we have been given, the incredible active faithfulness of God, when I think about the verses in Isaiah that speak so profoundly of God as the one who is active and the one who is moving and the one who is bringing us to him, I think maybe this doesn't go quite far enough. And so what I want to do is propose a different way of looking at this image. So we're going to reset to the first image, and here everything is the same. Uh, but maybe instead of a bridge that we need to cross to get to God, now God actually goes one step or many steps further, and it looks like this. Through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God's kingdom comes to us. God crosses the chasm and brings life instead of death and brings rescue from our slavery and brings freedom to us here and now in this life and in this place. 
So think about that a little bit. Let me know what you think. If you agree with that or not, if you feel like it's a, it's, it's a good illustration. To me, it captured something powerful that I think Isaiah speaks about well. The active movement of God to us. And when we think about what Isaiah teaches us about how to wait, it's this. To put our trust in a wonderful counselor, in a mighty God, in an everlasting father, in a prince of peace who is coming to earth, who through his life and his death and his resurrection has brought himself close to us and is living inside of us. And what we are called to do is to stand firm. We are called to keep oil in our lamps, to keep watch. But God is the one who is moving on our behalf. God is coming here. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Our inner drive is so deep to do it on our own and to push and to be good enough and to do the right things and to achieve. And that drive is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. We see in the Garden of Eden that we are built to work. We are designed to do and to achieve. But we live in darkness. And we get distracted and we make mistakes. And when we try to get it done on our own without God... We fail. Nevertheless, there is a bridegroom who is active, who is moving, who is coming close to us. God is the one that is making a way. And so I'm going to suggest that as a part of faithful waiting, a part of the way that we keep oil in our lamps is to simply remind ourselves of these truths, to tell ourselves the stories of Jesus, like that first song the quartet sang. Holding our lamps means telling each other truths about God and who he is. So as I thought about how to talk about this, or how to teach this, or how to work through this, this idea of talking to each other about God's faithfulness, I realized that the Holy Spirit, through Darren, through you, through us, uh, in many ways dropped the perfect opportunity in our laps. Two weeks ago, Darren asked you to send in verses or song lyrics uh, that reminded you of God's faithfulness. And you still have an insert uh, that lists those. If you don't have it in person, you should have it on your phone if you're a part of the bulletin uh, email list. And it's intended to be something that you can slip into your Bible or you can put in your nightstand or on your fridge or somewhere where it can be an encouragement to you. But for the last part of this sermon together, I couldn't think of anything better than taking some time together to speak about the faithfulness of God to each other. And so what I want to do is invite you into a time of kind of communal meditation or communal devotion on the faithfulness of God. And for the rest of our time with the sermon, what I'm going to ask is that we read this together. And how I propose that we do that is that the ushers will grab microphones and you can simply raise your hand and uh, once, you're, once you're, uh, you have a microphone, we're going to be working our way through this sheet. And so read the next verse that's on the list. So if you're interested or willing to be a reader, if you're interested to participate in this in that way, then raise your hand and Usher will come by. And wherever we've gotten to in that list, whichever verse lands, read that verse. And together we'll make our way through this sheet. And it doesn't have to be fast. And there might be gaps. And that's okay. But we'll do this together. 
I'm going to leave this last image up on the screen over this time as a visual reminder of a God who comes to us, who crosses the bridge in our direction. And also, as I often remind my youth before scripture or reading or prayer, I encourage you to slow yourselves down, to let your shoulders relax, to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, and to listen to allow God to speak through his body over the next few minutes. Allow your lamps to be refilled as we remember the faithfulness of God together. So I'm going to sit down and I'll read the first verse and then simply raise your hands and Usher will find you and we'll work our way through this list.